church and one thing, Phil, I'm going to be in the book of Romans. I didn't even connect with you initially, and I'm in the new King James Version today, and I know don't let everybody say, ah. But I have just found my heart led there this last week, and God has used this particular translation uh, to help me in my personal devotion. I'm going to be in the eighth chapter initially, and then I'll be dropping all the way back to the first chapter. But we're going to set the context. We have, I have felt led to call this summer the Summer School of the Spirit. Now, when Pentecostals reference the Spirit, the immediate connotation in the non-Pentecostal is that we are talking about the baptism of the Spirit. We're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. We're talking about the ministry empowerment of the Spirit. And that, in essence, is a stereotype to our faith system because we recognize the work of the Spirit is far greater than us just simply prophesying to you or laying hands on you and ministering to you. But the first work of the Holy Spirit in our life is to empower us to live and to walk a holy life before God. Come on now, and you're going to discover that as this is unfolding in the text. Now, in Romans 8 today, I want to ask you to stand up. We're going to read together these 17 verses before we backtrack. The Apostle Paul has done the most masterful job of sharing by direct revelation the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer to free us from the effects of the sin of Adam and the restrictions of the Mosaic Law. He brings us to a conclusion. So today, what we're doing is we're going to start with the conclusion and then go back to the beginning and work our way forward to arrive back at this conclusion. Whether or not time allows me to adequately skim the surface of the preceding seven chapters in one service, I don't know. I don't have a beginning or an ending. I don't have a single note on the platform with me. I sat down. I made notes. I attempted to prepare a sermon this week, and I couldn't prepare a sermon, but what I could do was prepare a preacher. And I found that when my heart was prepared, my confidence would not be on my preparation, but it would be on his supply. So here in Romans 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't understand that fully in its application until you have read the preceding, not verses only in the seventh chapter, but actually the entirety of the book or the letter up until this point. Because Paul has built an argument. He has built an argument and arrived at a conclusion here. And the conclusion is that if you are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation to you because you are not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For there is a law that's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that's made me free from the law of sin and death. There's a, different, a distinction between these two laws. For what the law, the Mosaic law, to which I'll be elaborating and sharing some things with you either this week and next week potentially about the law that I think will help you. This is the most, what's known typically as the Mosaic law. What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he 
condemned sin in the flesh. Notice this, Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful flesh because he had not sinned. And so he was in the likeness of it. Therefore, he condemned sin in the flesh, even containing sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law, I cannot wait. It may, I cannot probably arrive there today. I can't wait to elaborate this fourth verse, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, because when you get genuinely born again, you will walk differently. There will be a change. We, at baptism, the father that was baptizing his children said, out with the old and in with the new. But for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. If you're in the flesh, which that means you're not yet born again, born of the Spirit, then you've set your heart and your affections to gratify the desires and the appetites of your flesh. But if you live according to the Spirit or you've been made alive according to the Spirit and now you're living according to His indwelling in your own heart and life, then you are living in, in the things of the Spirit. You're following the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And there is a difference. Because the carnal mind, this is why that your unsaved loved ones cannot understand the peace that you have in troubled seasons. They can't understand the resolve that you have. They can't understand the obedience that you show, the disciplines that you live in front of them because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Try as they might, they cannot understand, nor can they discipline themselves enough to satisfy that law. So then those that are in the flesh, here's the conclusion, they cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. See, if you've not received the Spirit of Christ, the indwelling Spirit, regeneration, being born again, numerous synonyms to say the same thing, that then, then, then you are still in the flesh. You don't belong to God. You can look like a Christian. You can follow the movements of Christianity. You can come to church. You can stand when we say stand and sit when we say sit and still not be in, the, in Christ or in the Spirit if you, don't have, if you have not received the Spirit of Christ. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him, what a great revelation Paul gives us in the 10th and the 11th verse, and I'm going to hold elaborating on this revelation till later, uh, perhaps not again today, but later in this exhortation. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. People think, I don't know how I'll be able to serve God. You know, I've been bound to the desires of the flesh all my life. How am I going to be able to serve God? Because the same spirit that went into the tomb and raised the dead body of Jesus off of the cold stone and gave him life, that same spirit will quicken your mortal body and you'll be able to do what you previously could not do. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We're debt. 
not to the flesh. Previously, we were in debt to the flesh, but we are no longer a slave to sin. But now we live, we don't live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Father, Father. 16th verse. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I am a child of God. Not I will be, I may be. I'm not waiting on the resurrection to be adopted into his family. Come on, my voice says Abba to the Father today, right now. And if I'm a child or if I'm a children of God, then I'm an heir. I'm an heir of God. That means I'm his descendant. I'm in line for his blessing. I've noticed that when blessed people pass away, they pass blessing to their children. God has passed blessing to us. Come on. Through Christ, I'm a joint heir with Christ. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified together with him. Hallelujah. Now, this particular passage here in Romans 8, as previously stated, is the end of an argument that Paul has made concerning the righteousness of God that is by faith, the inadequacies of the law to provide righteousness for us, or also to empower us to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. But now, in Christ Jesus, we are distinctly different than the previous generation of people that were attempting to serve God only in their mind and in their flesh. We've received the pneuma, the breath of God, the life of God, and now we are able to serve God. Honestly, honestly, with an acceptable uh, fear and with reverence before God. So today, we're going to ask God to illuminate the work of the Spirit in our lives. Come on, somebody. We're going to go to His Word, and in my perhaps ignorance of the subject, I may skim over it and talk about it at a later date and time. But I'm going to do what Paul told Timothy to do. I'm going to read the Scriptures today. I want you, if you can follow it there, great. If you can't, hopefully you brought a Bible with you to church. If not, it's probably on your iPhone, your iPad, or your neighbor. Father, we love you, and we do thank you for the Word of God. And we set our affections upon it today. Father, and I have asked in my private devotions that this Word would have the fresh fragrance of Christ on it today, God. And that whatever part that I can play, that I can be used of God to expound or elaborate or to share an exhortation or to speak by revelation, I ask for that ability to do so today. It's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Now, very quickly, much of the ripple effect of the Supreme Court's decision has caused us to evaluate things in the church and ask hard questions such as defining policy. And I've shared that I have been torn just a little bit because of even adopting changes to our Constitution and bylaws. My greatest fear is that I would replicate 
the legality of the law, a legal structure that would hinder the growth of new believers. And that would not be my desire at all. But, and I know that can take place. The church has been guilty of in days gone by, restricting the life of God and the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus by constitution and bylaws and man-made ordinances. Come on, somebody. You know I'm telling the truth today. So I have to walk that fine line. But I've also been aware of just a little bit by the decision. It has caused us to just look at our culture some just a little bit about the lawlessness that we see in America today. And, and, and the frustration that we have felt as uh, believers who are also American citizens because of our heritage. Our heritage used to this, to choose laws, to write laws that were based upon biblical principle because it takes laws in order for a civil society to function. But what we're seeing today is men are taking advantage of the freedoms that have been granted to them by our Constitution, which gained its right from the Creator, right, as they said by their own pen, and taking advantage of it to create a generation of lasciviousness, of unbridled immorality, and we see this. So there is a spirit of lawlessness. Now, if you read the scriptures, anytime you see the term lawlessness, often you have to read it in the context of a first century Jewish writer writing and reflecting upon the Mosaic law and the ability of the Jewish people to infiltrate and influence their culture by the teachings of the law. Even let me give you an example. You've heard this before where there is no vision, the people perish. If you put that in its context, the context of that particular writer is saying where there is no revelation of the law, there's no restraint, and so therefore people perish. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? And so... I, what I have also felt is I have felt in my heart that perhaps even Christians, we get caught in this mindset of I am not under the law but under grace and so therefore we have nothing in essence beyond a belief that everything is available to me as a license to sin. We have no controlling mechanism. Now, the law should not be that. There's something greater than the law that I'm going to talk about in a moment, but the law had a divine purpose that God expounds through the pen of the Apostle Paul. So Paul addresses the depravity of, hum, uh, of mankind in the first chapter. Let's just quickly begin to glean from the first chapter for just a moment. Paul sets the precedence by even giving us a measure of where he's going in the 16th verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, chapter 1, 16th verse. If you have your Bible, follow it with me. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. First to the Jew, also to the Gentile. That's an important point because Paul will reference his Jewish brothers who have put their faith in the law to provide righteousness. And he's going to expound an argument that righteousness cannot come by the law and perhaps you'll understand that as we read this further he said for in it the righteousness of God in what in the gospel in the gospel the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith that is the just shall live by faith let me say that again in a way you might understand it the unjust 
which is all humanity, shall be made alive by faith. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, now hath he quickened us together with Christ. We were unjust in the eyes of God, but now by faith we're made alive and now we have communion and fellowship with God. Let's go further. For the wrath of God, the wrath of God is twofold. Let me expound upon it. The wrath of God fell on Christ on the cross. The wrath of God, the penalty for the transgression of Adam and all the sins of men, from the sin of Adam in the Genesis all the way to every man that was alive at the time that he was nailed to the cross, but also every man, woman, boy and girl from that day forward until the end of time, the entire penalty of man's sin, man, the singular sin of Adam and the subsequent sins of all men everywhere, the wrath of God fell on Christ on the cross. Now, but for those who reject the atoning work of his blood will one day face the wrath of God in the judgment that is yet to come. Let's read. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Paul begins to show the depravity of mankind since his, his movement from the garden. It led to idolatry. Man desired to worship God, but because man had sinned, he had died spiritually at that moment, and he begins to search for God through his, his soul and through his flesh. And so he developed idols. He begins to build. Uh, he begins to make and form and fashion idols. And then evil spirits come into those idols and convey things to men in those pagan priesthoods that men start adapting their lives to the idolatry and it becomes filled with depravity and debauchery and evil and sin. And, and, and Paul begins to address it. Let's read it together quickly. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So such thing, there is really nobody, nothing as an atheist because the atheist has an image of God in creation itself. And so let's go a little bit further. So that his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were unthankful. How did they know God? They knew God in his creation. They knew that there had to be a supreme being behind the creation. But they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts was darkened. They professed themselves to be wise, and they became fools. You know, some of the greatest fools that we have in America today are men with many degrees behind their name and their teaching at secular campuses and universities because the fool says in his heart there is no God. They're professing to be wise, but they themselves have become fools. And they've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. 
They're taking the image of God and trying to form him into a four-legged animal or a creeping thing. So God, in essence, gave them over. Look what he said, the 24th verse, to the uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. And they began even to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And here's the exhortation concerning one of our beliefs of why we deem homosexuality a sin because of Romans chapter 1. They changed the truth of God for the lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's idolatry. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Even as they did not like, that's where the world is today. That's the world that is evolving in our American culture today, right here. They do not like to retain God in their knowledge. They want to silence the voice of the church. They want to silence the power of conviction because the power of conviction makes men sinful and only when you realize that you are a sinner do you ever discover the need for a Savior. So he goes on down here in this particular passage. They don't like to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They're filled with all, and it's not just homosexuality. Come on, somebody. I've said it before. That's a diversion at times. It's the enemy causing us to, uh, all of our attention is on that one particular issue and we've got all kinds of wickedness all around us and the church puts his stamp of approval on a lot of it. And we're going to have to arrive at the place where we are going to stand up and speak the word of God because only when the word is spoken will anybody ever come under conviction. And it's not judgment. It's not because we are not to judge anyone. We're going to discover that in a few moments. But we're to speak the truth in love. Come on, somebody. So here he goes further. He said there, look at this. There's unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Does that sound like the, the culture that's emerging right here in the United States of America? Unforg- let's say undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unloving unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing, notice this, here's part of my frustration, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, there's still a belief in their mind of the righteous judgment of God, but that that those, look at this, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. But here's also a frustration. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. See, that's the distinction where the church is going to have to arrive at and be comfortable saying, I'm not going to give affirmation or approval to something that God has disapproved. And it's going to take courage like you have ever had in your life because the, the, the battle is getting hotter in our culture. You know, the church is being drawn out of the shadows once again. And we're having to arrive at the place where we're going to have to decide, do we want to be the salt and light? Do we want to be the influencers of our culture? Or do we want a secular culture filled with humanism to begin to decide and decipher the laws of our land? I believe God wants the voice of conscience in every nation across the world to be the voice of the church. 
the voice of conscience, the Holy Spirit quickening our words so that men and women can live in the parameters of a godly life. We're to pray for those who are in authority. For what reason? That we might live a quiet and peaceable life with all, with all godliness. So now Paul here begins to make a transition, and let's follow it, because oftentimes the church in our generation, as we address the issue of homosexuality, we arrive at this place, and then we kind of omit this next passage of Scripture. So Paul is setting the stage. I'm sure as that passage is being read at the church at Rome for the very first time, and the people of the church at Rome are aware of the, 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 the base culture in which they live in, the Roman Empire, I'm sure they're looking around and saying, mm-hmm, Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, from Nero, who was a professed homeless, he was a bisexual. You know, he was called Nero the Beast because he practiced, uh, uh, I can't even tell you, read history will tell you some of the evil things that he practiced. And they're living in that culture. And I'm sure as this being read, they're, the Christians there are hearing it are like, yes, the righteous judgment of God. But then Paul makes a shift, a transition here. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O oh man, Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, there is a righteous judgment. There is the ability of the church to speak to error. But God is reproving men who are condemning others who are practicing similar things. And so many times we see people in the church that are standing up and speaking loud against homosexuality while they're out at the club on Friday night going home with God knows who, shacking up together, but lifting their voice up and crying out against this particular segment of society. That's a stench in the nostrils of God as well. So he's going on here. He said, for we know, man, I'm preaching good in here without preaching today. This is not even preaching. I've said it before. There are times that we preachers just get in the way. The word will speak if we'll let it speak. He said, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. God will judge men according to truth against those who practice such things. How do you, and do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those that are practicing such things and doing the same? Hmm. We would call that hypocrisy. That you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, in a moment, Paul is going to really narrow who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his Jewish brethren, most probably Jewish brothers who've accepted faith in Christ but are still trying to obtain a measure of righteousness by the law. And in doing so, they are espousing judgment upon others while they themselves are failing the law in other places. They're choosing certain segments and bringing judgment against the immoral, uh, 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 the immoral culture that they're living in. And yet at the same time, they themselves are failing. So he definitely narrows it in a few moments. Let's read on down. He said, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek from glo for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth. How many of you know it's important that we obey the truth? 
but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile or of the Greeks. So there's the promise of the wrath that is yet to come. Now, I know in our culture today we have lost the reverence of God. We have lost our reverence for the judgment of God, our fear of the judgment of God. We're in a generation that is espoused to preach grace. And we thank God that we live according to the grace of God. But you can't understand the impact of the grace of God in your life until you first look at it through the lens of the judgment of God because of His holiness. Man had sinned and was sinful. Paul will soon paint the picture and expose to us that there was none righteous, no, not one. So God considered us all sinners so he could have mercy upon us all. So it's only when I look closely enough at the flames of God's wrath that's awaiting the unbeliever do I really understand the power of the grace that liberated me from that eternal judgment and brought me into new life in Christ Jesus. So I want you to know today that I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I'm a preacher of grace. But only by comparing the grace of God to the judgment of God do I get the liberty that I now have in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And I think we need to see it surface again in its right application in the contemporary church. Because I think in the absence of it, we have professed conversions without genuine conviction, without the heart being smitten, without somebody crying out, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. We have everybody signing up like we're going to the BYOM on a Sunday night. That's not about how you come to the church, to, to God. You come to God a recognition that you are depraved in your sin and you are unrighteous before God. But God so loved you that he put the penalty of your sin on his son who was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He suspended him on the cross and he put his fist upon him and he bruised him with his divine wrath and his divine judgment so that all who put their faith in Christ would be able to experience the love and the grace and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Hallelujah. So Paul here continues down, and I know, I'm sure I've already discovered quickly that I shall not make it all the way back to the 8th chapter today. I'm sure everybody's going, thank God we wouldn't be out here until 4 o'clock this afternoon. However, you know what? It would be worth it if we had to because we need this in our culture today. We've got to, we've got to combat this thing called biblical illiteracy. We are the most, uh, we are the most, uh, we have the most resources available of any generation, and yet we have produced the most biblically illiterate generation of believers since the first century. So something is wrong, church family. We've got to get this word inside us because as you get this inside of you, I'm telling you, it will produce life in you, and you will live your life differently. You will discover that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a child of God. I'm getting ahead of myself, but in Romans 6, he said the same instruments that I used to go to the club with, that I used to shoot up with, those same instruments that I used to do evil with and treat people maliciously and hateful, now I yield those instruments to the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit and I walk in righteousness and holiness and I'm able to please God. I'm pleasing God by my faith in Christ, but 
I'm also pleasing God by displaying the faith of Christ that I live out every day in my life. And I can't do it of myself. I do it by Christ who dwells in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. In my flesh, Paul said, there is no good thing. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can fulfill the will of God for my life. Hallelujah. So if you have seen, let's go on down. Let's, we're going to draw the line in a minute. I'll have to somewhere along the line, but I'm not ready just yet. So hold on for just a little while longer. He said there's no partiality with God. Notice this. This is very important because now he starts creating the argument that I have, that's been on my heart all week. Because if you have sinned without the law, you will also perish without the law even without having been exposed to the law. See, because there was a law that was placed in man that was beyond the written code. Now, you've got to catch this because I know that there are those that have never heard. They've never been enlightened by the revelation of the law. Those that had never been given the knowledge of God. But there is a, there was a spoken code. There was a DNA of morality that was placed in man in the Genesis. When God put Adam in the Genesis, he did not give him a written code. But he did speak an oral code to him. That oral code was, of all the trees that are in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day that thou eatest of, thou shalt surely die. And by that word spoken to the heart of Adam, God expected Adam to just serve him and walk with him and talk with him in the cool of the day. And I know there are those that don't have the knowledge of God through the law, but they will still perish without the law because as many as have sinned in the law will also be judged by the law whether you sin outside the law or inside. Paul is expounding and he's creating the, the, the point that all are sinners. That's, what he's, that's where he's going. This is the beginning of the argument that he will conclude in the third chapter. But he's beginning to address especially the Jew who's put his faith in the ability of the law to produce righteousness. And Paul will argue that the law, as good as it could be, could not produce righteousness. And did you know what? It cannot to this day. I can give you all the depths of uh, doctrines and creeds and codes and put you in the middle of it and expect you to walk between the yellow line and the white line and you can go the right direction and you can do the right thing and you can say the right thing, but that doesn't make you righteous before God. You may have righteous actions or motions or righteous works or you may even practice righteousness. But that doesn't mean that you're righteous in the eyes of God. Because only if you're in Christ. Come on now. Only when you have been added to the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. So let's go further. I'll get down and at the worst, I'll wrap up at the end of this chapter. At the worst, but I may draw the conclusion earlier. For now he said, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now he addresses the Gentiles who do not have the law. They didn't get the law. The law was given to the descendants of Abraham at Mount Sinai. It was a specific word of God to give them and establish a covenant with them that they would walk in the knowledge of God. But when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, that was our frustration with the Supreme Court's decision. 
because, again, the Constitution, which gained its rights from the Declaration of Independence, and the writers of the Declaration of Independence said that you and I obtained our inalienable rights from nature's God and the laws of nature. Are y'all hearing me? And when man affirms a law that is against nature, then in essence it's against God. Isn't that right? So the Gentiles who don't have the law, but when by nature they do the things that are in the law, when they're doing the right thing, these, by although not having the law, they become a law to themselves. And they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness. And that's why unregenerate man doesn't want us speaking the truth. Because the conscience will bring conviction that can lead to repentance. So they're bothered by that. They're bothered by your voice. They're bothered by your Facebook post. They're bothered by your t-shirt. They're bothered by my sermon. They're bothered by this word. The world is bothered by this word because this word causes them to be arrested before God. This word eventually accuses all men everywhere as guilty before God. What? What? Pastor, you're supposed to be preaching the good news. If I ended right there, it wouldn't be good news. But that's not the end of the story. The law has arrested us all as lawbreakers. And we deserve the penalty. But somebody came from heaven in the likeness of sinful flesh and said, I've searched the ability of man to redeem himself and I found him totally inadequate to pay the penalty that God's righteous law demands. So I'm going to give my life's blood. That's why it's called redemption. It's an exchange. My life for their death. I'll give my life in exchange. They're spiritually dead. I'm spiritually alive, Jesus said. I'll give my life so I can purchase them out of their spiritual death and draw them out of darkness into God's marvelous light by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's the power of the gospel. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. It's for the rich. It's for the poor. Come on, somebody. It's for the pious in religion or it's for the hardest sinner that's ever been born. If you'll just put your faith and your trust in the atoning blood of Jesus on the cross, then I'm telling you, your life will change now and for all eternity. Hallelujah. Man, that's a good word right there. So Paul is going here. He's saying this work is in their conscience. It's bearing their witness. It's either accusing them or it's excusing them. He said, in that day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. I know it's right at the noon hour, but let me go a little bit further. Somebody's watched beeped and it helped me know what time it was right then. Indeed. Now he's speaking to the Jew here. Let's take this for just a moment. We'll close with this. This will set the precedence for us to pick this back up in the third chapter next week. Indeed, if you are called a Jew and you rest on the law and you make your boast in God and you know his will and here even see so much is said negatively about the law. I'm not under the law. Don't put that on me. Look at this. Because of the law, they could approve the things that are excellent. The law helped the Jewish people be able to say, man, I don't need to be sleeping with beasts. God called it bestiality. The law said if two men lie together, that's an abomination. 
Are y'all hearing what I'm saying, people? So we look at the law and all of us Christians are like, oh, don't put that bond. No, the law was powerful. It was given to preserve the sanctity of life in the Jewish people and then to be a light to the rest of the world. He said it, it's a powerful thing. He said, now he's uh, reproving them though. Uh, let's see the reproof in just a moment. He said, you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and you're a light to those who are in darkness. You're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. You have the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore, but here's where the reproof comes in. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? Mm, my God, and suddenly everybody was shouting me down a moment ago and then it just went silent in there. He said, you teach everybody else. Can you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? <laughs> you who say don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So this reproof is to these Jewish believers who are making their boast in the law of God and in some measure it seems by the context that's later exposed to us that they believed that they were righteous, made righteous because they kept the law. But Paul is calling them on this lie. In essence, they're saying that they keep the law but as he would later write, now James would write, if you break the law in one part, <laughs> you're guilty of the whole law. You know, so we can look at the, the homosexual for just a moment in that context because of that being brought to our culture and to the forefront, and we can say, well, that's an evil sin, and we'll judge them by the law. But if you whisper in backbiting, then you're a, lie, a lawbreaker too. Right? So, so you can see the context Paul is taking human pride and religion out of the equation. Oh, y'all missed it right there. He's taking mankind's, mankind arriving at the place where he declares himself righteous because he has felt like he's satisfied a measure of the law. Again, Paul will go further in the argument later and he will show us all under sin. Let's, I know i got to close. Let me close. Let's get down a little further. Let's finish this. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among all the Gentiles because of you as it is written. Now let's close, let's close with this next part. For circumcision, which is a mark of the, you know, the faith of Abraham and it is spoken of in the law, is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. He said, really, there's no difference. Isn't that what he's simply saying? There's no difference. He's saying, so therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement, there is a righteous requirement of the law that I will be addressing later. Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In the context of natural man's ability to produce some measure of righteous requirement or fulfill a righteous requirement, he's saying in essence it really doesn't matter whether you're uncircumcised or circumcised. It's about whether you're a doer of the law, not just a hearer. He said, will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? And as he closes here, this argument, and it transitions us into next week. He said, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. The reason why Paul is saying this, he is not a Jew outwardly, 
is because by using the reference to the Jew, the Christian people recognized the Jew was the, the, inherit, the, the ones that would inherit the covenant promises of Abraham. And so by writing this, he said a Jew is not just somebody that's on the outside. Now Paul will make the argument later in the fourth chapter uh, in the descendants of Abraham. He especially makes this argument in the book of Galatians, but he's lightly touching on it right here. And he's saying being a Jew is not necessarily just being a natural descendant of Abraham, and it's not the mark of circumcision. Because he said, let's read this further. Because so many people say, well, that's the people of God. Well, who are the people of God? Who really are the people of God? Who are the people of God? Let's see this. He said, circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so, that's probably not my ideal place to stop at here today, but I will stop for the sake of time. I started by saying this, we want to arrive at the place, church family, where you and I realize that the work of the Spirit of God, the word spirit in Greek is pneuma, it means the breath of God. The breath of God, God breathes into us His Spirit and we become alive unto God. We were made in the likeness and the image of God. Adam was made in God's likeness and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The Spirit of God joined with his soul and gave him life upon his sin in the garden. What our belief is is that the pneuma of God left because the Bible says the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. He continued to live for 906 or 908 years on planet earth but the day that he broke the covenant of God he died spiritually. The breath of God, the pneuma of God left him. He still had a soul. He still had mind, will, and emotions. He could still talk about God. He could still pursue after God. He knew that there was an existence of God. He saw him in his creation. He no longer walked with him in the cool of the day, but he believed in the existence of God. Mankind that is not born again knows of God, but they don't know God. The only way to know God is to submit your life to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and when you do, when you do, he sends his spirit Woo! I gotta run on that right there. He sends, I don't run as fast as I used to. Shut up Austin Brown. I don't run as fast as I used to. But I will say this, when I realize that God sent his spirit into my heart, crying, Abba, Father, and I'm no longer judged by my attempt to adhere to a religious code to create righteousness, but I am in Christ, made alive, a child of the Most High God, an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. That's a reason to run, because I am born by the spirit, born from above, not carnal flesh, not a carnal mind. I'm not just trying to know God in my mind. I know him in my spirit. He sent his spirit into my heart crying Father Father Hallelujah. Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed today. We won't even bring Daryl up for the sake of time.